0: have it read and preached. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter five, verses one through 12. So you can grab your Bibles, turn there, and then let us stand together for the reading of God's word. Again, Matthew five, verses one through 12. This comes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' famous teaching, and this section is called the Beatitudes. It contains uh, statements and declarations of blessings. So please pay pay attention to the reading of God's word this morning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And turn now with me to Leviticus chapter 26 for our Old Testament reading and the passage that I'll be preaching on this morning As you're turning there, if you read Ali's weekly email this week, uh, you would have seen that the the text for this Sunday was going to be Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, together with the very beginning of Deuteronomy, or end of Deuteronomy 27. I decided later in the week to switch over to the parallel passage in Leviticus. Uh, I will be reading this whole chapter, but just have mercy on me as I read these 40 verses, knowing that it could have been 150 verses if we had been in Deuteronomy. But please, this morning, pay attention to the reading of God's Word from Leviticus chapter 26, one through the end. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your lands to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new." I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments If you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. Then I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. And you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins." You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. When you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another, as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me. And also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity, because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord, their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we always need your help to understand your word correctly. So we pray for your help this morning, for your assistance. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit among us to open up our eyes, to open up our hearts, that we would understand the truth of your word. Father, we pray that as we dive into this passage, that it would not just be full of just theological truths and facts to know, but that we would be changed by your word and that above all other things, we would see Christ. That is our desire, God, to see Jesus Christ in all of scripture, to be drawn to him in faith and repentance. So we pray that these things would be in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we are, two weeks into our series on the minor prophets, and we have yet to actually look at any of the minor prophets. Maybe wondering, what are these pastors doing? Well, in storytelling of any kind, slowness can be a benefit to the story or a hindrance to the story. Good slowness in a story serves as setup that has satisfying payoff later down. The line, a great example of masterful slowness in storytelling, is Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. I'm guessing that many of you have watched the movies, but maybe you have not read the books. In the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, by the time you get to the fifth chapter, you are over 100 pages into the book. And the hobbits have not yet left the shire. And you're saying... I thought this was a story about a dark Lord. I want to see some elves. Where's the big battle? Can I get some action already? Why am I a hundred pages into the book? And it seems like nothing meaningful has happened yet. But for those of you that have pressed on and read through the Lord of the Rings, you know that it's the patient reader that is rewarded for their patience and rewarded in the end. Slowness in storytelling can serve many purposes. It can develop characters It can flesh out the world in which the story takes place. It can build compelling tension that is then resolved when you hit the climax of the story. And done well, slowness in storytelling can pay huge dividends in the end. And that is our goal in these first two weeks. I am not claiming to be Tolkien, and Josh is no C.S. Lewis. We don't claim to be master storytellers and world builders. But... We do hope that spending some slow time here preparing for our time in the minor prophets will pay dividends through the next 32 weeks or eight months as we dive through the minor prophets. We are hoping to set them up to have payoff in the end. Now, the minor prophets, which we're going to be looking at, and the prophets in general in Scripture are known as one of the hardest parts of the Bible to understand. If you dive right into reading through the prophets on your own and you don't do any preparation work of trying to understand the context and the author, you're probably going to get lost very quickly. And it seems that in the challenge of understanding the prophets, people often want a key, a secret key that will help them to decipher what the prophets are talking about. But often the problem is that people look for that key in the wrong place. The key to the prophets is not some complicated and convoluted chart. It's not a cipher that's hidden somewhere in the text that if you find this one cipher, it's going to reveal all of the hidden truths in the minor prophets. No, the key to understanding the prophets is the covenants. God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with David, And especially, as we will see, God's covenant with Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, often called the Mosaic Covenant. And because that covenant with the people of Israel through Moses, we think is the key to understanding the minor prophets, that's why we spent two weeks now, we're going to spend two weeks, before we dive into the prophets themselves, in the law that was revealed to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. And later on through Moses, as we're diving into into Deuteronomy 18 last week, and then Acts 3 relating to Deuteronomy 18. And this week, as we dive into Leviticus 26. But even more specifically, the key to understanding the prophets is the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic covenant and the hope of restoration for those who repent. So here is the covenant key to the prophets. If you understand this, then you'll understand much more about the minor prophets. So here's our big idea that I want you to understand to prepare us for the next 32 weeks. God's covenant extends blessing to covenant keepers and curses to covenant breakers. That's the first half. Let me repeat that one more time for those of you who are taking notes. God's covenant extends blessings to covenant keepers And curses to covenant breakers. Yet, and here's the second half. Yet, God's covenant offers hope of restoration when the covenant is broken. God's covenant offers hope of restoration when the covenant is broken. So if you need just a simple way of remembering these two pieces, the first is blessings and curses. The second is hope of restoration. And that's how we're going to split up the text this morning, looking at blessings and curses and hope of restoration. And then in both of those sections, just to give you a roadmap of where we're going, in both of those sections, I'm going to look at how what we see in the text applies in the passage in Leviticus 26, then how it applies in the prophets, and then lastly, how it applies in the present. So we're going to look at three perspectives on these topics, in the passage, in the prophets, and in the present. So first, I'm going to dive in. Blessings and curses in the prophets. So God's covenant extends blessings to covenant keepers and curses to covenant breakers. So let's dive into the text. Look at verses one through two with me. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. These first two verses give a summary for us of what the entirety of Leviticus has been about up to this point. God has revealed his law to the people of Israel, summarized in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. We see those topics come up throughout Leviticus. 26, and through Leviticus as a book, we see that God commands them to not have idols, to not pursue after other gods, to keep God's Sabbaths that he has given to his people, and to worship God rightly. That's the reference to reverence my sanctuary. Leviticus is full of commandments about worship. So this is what the whole book of Leviticus has been about, and he's calling it to mind Because the condition for blessings and condition for curses is related to those commands that were given. So if you look then at verse 3, you'll notice the condition for blessings. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then these blessings will come. So let's look at the blessings. I'm not going to detail all of these dive into each blessing and then later into each curse. I'm going to give more of an overview for us just to save some time and get you the big idea, which is what we want you to come away with. A great way to summarize the blessings here is that there are two categories of blessings. There are blessings in nature and blessings in warfare. And I'm borrowing those categories from Dr. Richard Belcher. Blessings in nature and blessings in warfare. And if you look at verses 3 through 13 with all of the blessings listed, you'd probably be able to categorize each of those blessings into one of those two categories. We see blessings in nature in verses 4, 5, 9, and 10. So they will have agricultural abundance, right? They will have agricultural abundance. They will multiply as God's people and fill the earth. They will have far more than they need great abundance of food and supplies. And then we see in verses six and seven, the blessings in warfare, that God will give them peace, that God will give them protection, protection from wild beasts and protection from their enemies. And he will give them victory over their enemies. God will give them blessings in nature and blessings in warfare. And this blessing section Increases in significance. A good way to understand it is as the blessings are list- listed off, they become more and more significant. And they reach their pinnacle at the last blessing in verses 11 and 12. This is the chief blessing that God can give his people. It says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. When we hear those words, I will walk among you, doesn't that draw us back to the Garden of Eden where God dwelled among among his people with Adam and Eve. He walked with them and fellowshiped with them. And then what follows that, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because it was in our assurance of pardon in Hebrews chapter eight, quoting from and referencing prophetic Uh, prophecies about the new covenant, that I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the chief blessing of all of scripture. This is the greatest gift that God can give to his people. Not material abundance, not even just victory. The greatest thing that God can give us is himself. Fellowship with him, covenant life with him as his people. It's important then that we look at the end of the blessing section in verse 13. It's important for us to recognize where these blessings ultimately come from and where the relationship comes from between God and man. We were reminded in verse 13 of what we see at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter twenty. That their obedience to God is meant to flow out of what God has already done for them in establishing a relationship. In verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And we see that refrain through the blessings, even at the beginning I am the Lord, I am your God, I have redeemed you, I have saved you, purchased you, you are my own. Now live for me. And I think that's very important that will flow forward even into today, that our obedience of God is meant to flow from his gracious salvation of us. It doesn't earn our relationship with him. It flows from it. So that's the blessings in this passage here. Blessings in nature, blessings in warfare, and then the chief pinnacle blessing of blessing with God himself. And then second, let's look at the curses in this passage. The list of curses is much longer, isn't it? It's verses 14 through 39. And just like the blessings, it begins with the condition. But this time the condition is broken. It says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commands, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And then the covenant curses are listed for the people. And again, I'm not going to walk through all of these curses, but I think the best way to understand the curses is as a reversal of the blessings. We see all the same categories of agriculture, wild beasts, children, warfare, abundance, all of them brought back up again, but now reversed against the people of God. There are curses in nature now and curses in warfare. Fruitful fields will be destroyed. Enemies will defeat them in battle. Instead of multiplying their children, they will be killed by animals. And in Just a really gruesome and challenging passage here. It says that they will be killed and eaten even by the own hands of their parents. Talking about the depravity and brutality that will happen in God's people when they turn from God and God brings his curses against them. And they increase in severity just as the blessings increase in how good the blessings was. The curses increase in how terrible and frightening and severe they are. And there's this refrain through it, that reaches its pinnacle in verses 27 and 28. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Notice that this pinnacle of the curses is not the absence of God. The pinnacle of these curses is the presence of God walking contrary to his own people. It would be one thing for God to say, I'm going to leave you behind and let you get destroyed. It's another thing for God to say, I am going to turn against you. I'm going to walk contrary to you. I am going to become your enemy. I don't think of anything more blessed than having fellowship with God and nothing more terrifying than that same God turning against you, becoming your enemy. Destroying that relationship that had been established, at least for a time. God said he would walk contrary to them. So, to summarize, we have in this passage blessings for keeping the covenant and curses for breaking the covenant. Those blessings and curses involve blessings and curses in nature, blessings and curses in warfare, and have their pinnacle in how that plays out in the people's relationship with. God himself. So now let's move from there, from that basic concept in the passage. Now let's look at that applied in the prophets. So this is where this is going to set up what we're doing for the next 32 weeks. As we go through the prophets, we're going to recognize that these categories of blessings and curses are, are going to come up over and over and over again. This is a great key to understanding what the prophets are doing. One of the best ways to describe the calling of the prophets is to see that they were called as covenant enforcers. Josh used that term last week. They are covenant enforcers. The prophets, especially the minor prophets, lived during a time when God's people were continually turning away from God. They were seeking after other gods. They were breaking the covenant. And God sent the prophets to call them out. In a way, they made they were like prosecutors who were laying out a lawsuit against God's people saying, this covenant was given to you and you have broken it piece by piece by piece. And when they make that case for a broken covenant, you're going to see that they bring warning after warning against the people of God. They, they proclaim judgment against the people of God. And when they do that, and we see that in the minor prophets, we should go back and think about Leviticus 26. Often what they're doing is they're applying these curses to God's people. In a way, it's saying, God is saying, I told you that this would happen if you did this. And now I'm reminding you again and warning you again. If you persist in these things, I've told you what's going to happen. You're going to be sent off into exile, taken away by your enemies. I'm going to turn against you. Those themes are going to come up over and over again in the prophets. And I think that's helpful for us to recognize that most of the time, the prophets aren't declaring something that is completely new. What they were doing is applying what God had already revealed. So I want you to imagine for a moment that we are here together gathered on a Sunday morning. Shouldn't be hard because that is where we presently are. But imagine that we gather for a Sunday morning and Josh or I step up to deliver the sermon. But we never tell you the passage. We don't read to you the passage, and as we go through the sermon, we never directly quote or reference what passage we're preaching on. You might have a hard time following what we're trying to say. You might have a hard time trying to guess where are they going with this. It's helpful for us to be clear, this is what we are preaching, OK? This morning we are preaching Leviticus 26. You can have your eyes on it. you've heard it read. You can follow along with where I'm going, but if we hide that information from you, It's gonna make your whole job a lot harder. A good way of thinking of the minor prophets is that they are preaching divinely inspired sermons on Leviticus 26. This is their text. This is what they are preaching to the people of God. And of course, it's different than my preaching and Josh's preaching. This is divinely inspired preaching, still revelation from God. But nevertheless, they are preaching to God's people the blessings and the curses. Of the covenant. So, just like if we don't give you the text, you're going to have a hard time. When we recognize what text they're coming from, we have a much easier time understanding the prophets. So, we've looked at the blessings and the curses in the passage, then in the prophets, they were preachers of the blessings and curses. And lastly, let's look at the present. How does this apply to us today? So, first, let's look at the blessings. The big reminder that we need constantly is what we saw in verses 11 through 12. The greatest blessing of God's covenant is not abundance or protection, but God himself. True blessedness, true happiness, true wholeness is found in covenant with God and him alone. He is the greatest blessing that he can give us. We often make one of two mistakes or we make both mistakes at the same time. I tend towards making both of these mistakes at the same time. We make the mistake, especially in our culture today, of thinking that happiness and wholeness will be found by looking within us, by digging deep inside of us, by finding our true self. But that search is a bottomless mine with no gold on the other end. It is a hollow search to dive inward and inward and try to find happiness and wholeness inside ourselves. Then the second mistake that we can make is to find happiness and wholeness outside of us by accumulating stuff. Free two-day delivery has become, in a way, the god and idol of American culture. We think that clicking on buy now and receiving that package in two days, it's going to show up on my front steps. I'm going to walk out. I'm going to have this thrill of satisfaction because I have these New things that that is going to fill me up, it's going to give happiness. And of course, if we think through that, we know that it's not true. But how often is it just the accumulation of stuff, the purchasing of something new that we think is going to give us happiness? It's going to give us wholeness. So we search inside, but then we search outside in the wrong places. And both of these are futile. Only God can bring the satisfaction that we are searching for, only God can bring true blessing. As we look at the idea of blessing, I want to bring us back to Matthew chapter 5 in our New Testament reading. We see that this concept of blessing for the people of God is not just an Old Testament thing. We see Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount giving blessings to the people of God. Many scholars see the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus acting as the new Moses. This is where Jesus is the new lawgiver. And he is the one that is now declaring the blessings and curses to the people of God. There are plenty of warnings in Matthew chapter five, along with these blessings. But I want to highlight for us a couple things about these blessings from Matthew chapter five. The main thing is at the end of the blessings and in the last two blessings in verses 10 through 12. If you look there with me. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What we need to see is that blessing, obedience is good for us right? If we obey God, there is blessing to be found there. But Jesus even recognizes that we need to have balance in how we understand this blessing. There are times when the most righteous people on earth are the people who suffer the most. When it's because of your righteousness that you are persecuted. You might be saying, God, where is the blessing for me there? I thought you told me you'd give us abundance, that you would give us fruitfulness, all of the things that we desire, God, you would give us those things. But Jesus reorients our thinking and he says, blessed are you if you are persecuted. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. The fruitfulness, the abundance that is promised to us is something that we're not guaranteed on earth, even with the most righteous and faithful life but it is still something that is guaranteed for those who trust in Jesus. Jesus' blessing for us, even amidst our suffering, is that our reward will be great in heaven, and there we will receive all the blessings of God in their fullness. But we'll get into that a little bit more with our second section. On the flip side, coming back to Leviticus 26, we can't expect to find happiness and wholeness if we are walking contrary to God. Sin might bring us temporary satisfaction, but this passage is a reminder to us that it's not going to work out for us. Even in the present, sin is destructive. Sin destroys you. It destroys your relationships. It destroys your fellowship with God. There are definitely differences in the context from the minor prophets and Moses to us in the new covenant, but sin still has serious consequences. Consequences that are far worse than a bad crop, far worse than an enemy attack. And again, just as the greatest blessing is God, the most serious consequence for those who turn from God is his judgment and his wrath, him turning against us. And that's why even in the New Testament, we see warnings for those who would break the covenant and turn away from God. We just went through Hebrews and there's warnings over and over again. Don't walk away. Don't turn away from God. Praise the Lord that Leviticus 26 doesn't end there. It does not end with the curses. It doesn't end with this broken relationship with God. Leviticus 26 ends with hope of restoration. And that's what we need to hear because we know when we look at those blessings and curses and we look at God's law, even looking at the very basic tenets of the 10 commandments, we know that we are covenant breakers. We know that we are not always faithful, but God is their hope for us. Is there hope for us beyond the curse? This passage says yes. The first half that we saw is that God's covenant extends blessings to covenant keepers and curses to covenant breakers. But let's finish that statement. God's covenant offers hope of restoration when the covenant is broken. God's covenant offers hope of restoration when the covenant is broken. So let's look at that. Let's look in the passage again, in the prophets and in the present. Let's look at hope of restoration in the passage. There are so many times in scripture that when we are taken to the very depths of the effects of our sin and the bad news of our sin, that we are brought back to the heights by the hope of the gospel. There are all these beautiful turns. You were dead in sin, but God. And we have that great, but God turn here. Or the yet that is true, we see it in verse 40, that great word, the butt of the gospel, right? All of the curses, after all those are laid out, verse 40 offers renewed hope for us. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. And here I think we learn the ultimate purpose of the curses in the covenant. There's this vital word that is repeated throughout the curses. We see this word in verse 18, 23, and 28. That word is Discipline. The curses were God's discipline. He loved his people and his children enough. He loved them enough to discipline them with the purpose of drawing them back to himself in repentance. And that's the hope of verses 40 through 45. When God's people learn from his discipline against them, when they turn back to God, if they confess their sins, if they are humbled before him, then God will redeem them. God will restore them. There is always hope for those who repent. This passage also gives us the foundation of that hope in the covenant faithfulness of God. What is the foundation? What is the grounds of our hope? How can we know that God will restore us? It's that he is faithful to his covenant. Look at verses 43 through 45 with me say, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. And again, hear this turn. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God, but I will for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So here's this reminder, even though they would break the covenant over and over and over again, that God will never break his covenant. God will always be faithful I will not spurn them. I will not break my covenant with them. We see that over and over again. Look at verses 42 and 45. How many times it mentions that God will remember his covenant. He will remember his covenant with Jacob, with Isaac, with Abraham. He will remember his covenant made with Israel at Sinai in verse 45. They may forget the covenant, but God will not forget his covenant. And he will not turn his back ultimately on his people. So how does this apply to the prophets? Well, there's two themes, hope for the repentant and hope found in God's covenant faithfulness, are all throughout the minor prophets. First, the minor prophets as covenant enforcers, those who pointed the people of God to the curses of the covenant, did so so that they would call God's people to repentance and confession. Over and over is the call to turn to God, to turn from your sin, to confess, to repent, and God will save you. But the ultimate ground of hope in the prophets, just like in Leviticus 26, is God's covenant faithfulness. You're going to notice as we go through the minor prophets that there is this regular shift between two topics. They go back and forth between judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. The judgment is based in the curses of the covenant. But the hope is based in the blessings that God will give, not because the people keep the covenant, but because he will never forsake his covenant. In the Minor Prophets, this theme is brought out in the concept of the day of the Lord. You're going to see that repeated throughout the Minor Prophets. Even when Israel and Judah are conquered, they're dragged off into exile, God promises through the prophets a day Specific day, the day of the Lord, when he will restore his blessings to them and he will send his curses upon his enemies and their enemies. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment and salvation. It is the primary future reality that's off on the horizon. So when we think of the prophets as as preachers of the past covenant and we think of them also proclaiming future realities, their future realities are, are grounded in this. In the restoration, the hope of God's covenant faithfulness. In the day of the Lord, it's the truth out on the horizon that they are proclaiming to God's people. But then how about the present? Why does this matter for us? Well, the good news of the gospel is that there, are, there is hope for those who repent. And that hope is rooted in God's covenant faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Through the prophets, God declared to a people suffering from the serious consequences of their sin, that he would restore them back to himself when they turned back to him. Now, in our lives today, we don't get dragged off into exile. It's not like Canada is going to come invade us from the north and drag us up up into Ontario and we're going to be in exile. Up in Canada, right, it's not necessarily that we're going to have bad crops. We're going to have an early, uh, we're going to have a late frost that kills the buds on our apple trees. Right, but there is good news for us if we feel like we have made an absolute and complete wreck of our lives, or if you feel like you've wandered so far from God that He couldn't possibly restore you. You may look at your past, and I've felt this at points in my life. You may look at your past and just see a wake of broken relationships, of lies, of hurt, and destruction. You look back and say, God, could this ever be? redeemed could you ever save someone like me god i i am in exile i'm experiencing the consequences of my sin and god it is heavy and it is hard but god's word calls out to us even then and even now to turn to him to repent and he will restore turn from your sin and turn to god and he will abundantly forgive And he will abundantly renew. And ultimately, the hope of those who turn back to God is in his covenant faithfulness. That God has not forgotten his promises to Abraham, Moses, David. And the day of the Lord that the prophets declared, it has come. And it is also yet to come. We all often talk about the already and the not yet of the Christian life. The realities that have already come about with Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And the realities that we long for, that we look forward to. And those are brought forward for us in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has come in Jesus' death and his resurrection. When we come to the table of the Lord today, we remember the two realities. That the day of the Lord has come and it will one day fully come when Jesus returns. That is what we remember at this table. We remember that the day of the Lord has come, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the covenant promises of God. We remember the blessings and curses of that covenant. We know that in the first coming of Jesus, judgment and salvation came to be. But not because we bore our own judgment, but because he bore it in our place. Jesus took the covenant curses so that we would receive the covenant blessings. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 remind us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The day of the Lord has come in Christ. He has borne the curse of the law in our place on the cross. But the day of the Lord is also something that we look forward to. It is something that is yet to come. In the Lord's Supper, we remember that the day of the Lord will one day come to its fullness. And that one day we will eat and drink with Jesus. Jesus instituted the meal of the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And pay attention to this last phrase, this sentence from Jesus that ends the institution of the Lord's Supper. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We look forward in faith to the day when Jesus returns, when we shall eat and drink and feast with him in the Father's kingdom, when he makes all things new. This life is often full of sorrows, sickness, and suffering, but there is a day that is full of abundance and blessing, fruitfulness, victory, and peace that will be given to God's people, never again to be taken away from them. It is to that day that the prophets looked, and it is to that day that we look as we gather together around the table of the Lord.